we'll come back to decisions yet again, decisions in the West. And uh, I welcome a uh, friend of the space, friend of Ukraine, journalist, author, and editor of the Frankfurter Altmeine Sonntagszeitung, Konrad Schuller. Good evening. Guten Abend. Good evening to all of you. Very much appreciated that you're taking time yet again for us and for our audience, and I uh, hope we'll have an enjoyable hour in this regard, despite the fact that the topic is, of course, not that enjoyable, but it's important that we raise it. Um, in recent weeks and months, you've written a few times about this from different angles, and just on the last weekend, yet again, highlighted the issue which, we can, which we've seen to an extent already last year, for the first time when we saw chips which came in from in this case, then Thales, which had uh, been brought in by the French prior to the invasion and were used by targeting systems um, on the Russian side. However, most recently, the trace, the path, leads back to Germany, to Infineon. Can you tell us a little bit about what you and uh, your colleagues found? We started with a... Um, uh... Ukrainian paper issued by the uh, presidential administration and presented to Western diplomats in uh, mid-June, which showed that um, Russian missiles who are, are attacking Ukraine almost every night, every day, since the beginning of the war, missiles like the Iskander, the different versions of Iskander, like the Kinjal, the Ha-101, contain to a significant measure chips and other parts made in Western countries. Um, it was not only Infineon. Infineon is what we wrote about, just a case study. It's just the top of an iceberg. Um, we, select, we found that, um, or more correctly, the Ukrainians found that um, um, most Western parts in these missiles actually came from the United States, uh, Switzerland being number two and Japan and Germany being number three, sharing, sharing number three. So if I talk about Infineon now, that doesn't mean that others are less responsible for the import of sanctioned goods into Russia, um, goods that end up in Russian missiles and kill Ukrainians. So what we found out, we, we followed the track of one particular microchip, one of eight Infineon microchips found in the Ha-101 cruise missile. So it's just one of eight. And these, these microchips have a um, customs tariff number. And with the use of publicly available data, it's possible to track down imports into Russia. The, um, the way that happens is that Russia basically publishes its customs data for money. Uh, it's a source of income. Uh, so if you are a paying customer, you can buy Russian customs data. And what we found is that this particular single chip, which is just one little piece in a huge mosaic, um, has been imported since the beginning of the sanctions in October last year until the 30th of June of this year, 160,000 times. Although it's on a sanctions list of the European Union, 
And some of the importers were entities, companies, who are also on the sanctions list of the European Union. So what we found out is, how is that possible? Uh, these chips don't just get sent by the producer to Russia. The producer, th that would be a criminal offense. Uh, what we can just see is that they reached Russia mostly from China and other countries, China being the most important one. In this particular case, it was something like 60 companies from 11 countries that um, exported this particular chip into Russia. And it is very difficult to, to trace to trace down the path that these items have taken from the producer in Finian to the end customer in Russia. Um, Infineon says um, they are aware that this happens. They are terribly sorry that it happens, but they claim not to be responsible. They claim that they control their customers, but they cannot say if a trade goes over five or seven different hands, they cannot control all these, all these long chains of, 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 of traders that at the end deliver chips into Russia. Um, so um, what we see is this huge stream of goods reaching Russia against, although they are listed on the European Union or US or UK or Ukrainian sanctions list. And um, nobody seems to have found a way to stop that. Um, what we see is that there is criticism of the German um, customs authority. The German customs authority, it doesn't seem to have increased its, uh, the number of, of staff dealing with sanctions since the beginning of the war. They seem to still work in a regime and with funds that um, are organized as if there would not be a war and as if there would not be a sanctions regime, whereas other countries have completely changed their ways of working. Scandinavian countries are quite good. The UK seems to, UK seems to be good. Um, Germany seems to be less good, doesn't seem to have a sanctions enforcement culture that is good enough. And it also seems that um, German customs authorities don't request, don't require big internationals, big international companies like Infineon to do that simple research that we, Frankfurter Allgemeine, did together with a Norwegian expert um, from um, um, Alan Björtvet, who works uh, for the Norsinki, for the Norwegian Helsinki committee. Um, so this research that we did could have been done by others. So the question is, why do the German tax authorities don't not do that sort of research? Why do big companies don't do that sort of research and and see the red flags that are visible in inter, in international trade data? Germany is very dependent on exports. Germany has a small and medium-sized uh, industrial base predominantly, and small size in Germany is still large in the European context. A medium-sized German industrial concern with a uh, large 
both the supply chain as well as distribution chain tends to be um, in the range between 500 million euros and way above. So it's not that small. However, the requirements, which in other countries, be it Finland, the Baltics, um, Britain, as you just said, um, brought forward to the exporters are substantially higher. Now, in those countries, at least uh, the Scandinavian ones, and plus Finland and the Baltics, you would see also, of course, a significantly higher degree of digitization. One of the key uh, issues which Germany can't compete with, most is paper-based. As I understand, the German customs um, investment in computers is approximately a tenth of the amount invested by Britain. And that tells you pretty much everything you need to know because Britain is in the medium range of investments into customs uh, technology. So does that mean that the political will, yet again, in Germany is not there and everybody is not on a war footing and therefore really doesn't care and actually just wants to get on with it? Um, that's partially, that's a part of the picture. Uh, you, will, you will see that um, in the political sphere, people like from 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 some parties like the Christian Democrats or like the Liberals will tend to 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 put um, sales and business above sanctions. Um, you can see that, um, for example, in um, the prime with the prime prime minister of the land of Saxony, um, um, Michael Kretschmer, who very soon. And constantly, ever, ever since the beginning of, of the full-scale invasion, uh, repeats uh, the high gas prices are suffocating our businesses. The high gas prices are suffocating the, the, the so-called little man. Uh, let's start to re let's start to import Russian gas again. Um, um, you hear that sort of uh, voices. You don't hear that sort of voices so much from um, from the Greens. The Greens seem to be the most determined in the German public, uh, in the German political landscape, the most determined actually to do something. Um, the liberals who have the, um, 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 the Ministry of Finance and the Customs Authority under them um, have not been have not notably increased their efforts to create a stronger customs regime. So yes, you could say we, we lack a culture of, of, of respect for the sanctions regime. Other than um, um, Scandinavian countries different from, from, um, from the UK, for example, with the Baltics, um, I, I'm not quite sure whether they, they don't also have huge problems. If you look at countries, at, at, Latvia does. Uh, Latvia, and if you look at if you look at, at figures that um, uh, the experts of CoRISC in Norway have uh, presented, um, if you add up the, the the total value of of goods exported to Russia violating the sanctions regime. Number one is Germany from, from, the, um, from the point of view of, of volume. And number two is Lithuania. So 
if you if you uh, if you calculate by capita, um, Lithuania. Plowman, can you hear Conrad? No, actually, um, I lost him. I, uh, I thought my my connection has gone. I think he might have just received a call. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> well known problem. Uh, let me let me send him a message, and uh, we'll probably have to um, cycle him back up again. I sent him another invitation. I presume he will come back in just about a second. Let me see how this works. Whether we can get him back onto the speaker panel in just about a second. It's uh, it's a very depressing expose of the uh, state of the world uh, uh, regarding the sanctions, isn't it, Axel? And I, I would be very interested to hear about the, 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 the numerical values of the, the goods exported. What is the, what is the um, notional amount of it, um, if you like? Um, well, that's the thing. The, the amounts, uh, the amounts, um, uh, um, the amounts to an extent matter, but most importantly is what is being transferred and to whom. No, absolutely. And I think, uh, especially if you look at this chips, um, this memory chip in the article, um, that thing doesn't cost much, actually. Uh, these, these are cents we're talking about, or a few dollars per chip. Um, and uh, I, I barely can can understand why someone would risk the lives of, of, of human beings, of Ukrainians, just to sell a chip which is worth, what is it, a dollar, a dollar fifty? Um, and, and help the aggressor. All right. Uh, just very briefly, Conrad, I can see you amongst our listeners. I'm not sure as to whether you can hear us. If you can hear us, uh, please request again or accept the invite, which I'm sending you now. All right. In the meantime, we may be just uh, collecting questions from the audience of Conrad so we can address them later. Daryl. Hey, good afternoon, Axel. Uh, yeah, my question was going to be just uh, what he was just mentioning with the trade in, uh, with Germany and Lith uh, Lithuania is, one, how are they making these trades? And two, um, in, you know, what type of, I hear you mentioned in chips, what other type of goods are they uh, trading at this point? Did you catch me or was I speaking? No, no I, I, I caught you. I caught you. All good. We'll come to that if you stay with us. I'm trying to get him back in. There seems to be a technical glitch, which I'm trying to mitigate, which obviously is unfortunate, but there you go. It is, after all, as we all know, Twitter. It's been a booger today. Robin was on almost by herself uh, because of uh, Twitter. Yeah, that was also Peter's phone. In the meantime, we have Alex as well with his stand-up show. My question would be, um, most of the companies that resell these chips to Russia either did not exist last year or were buying volume nowhere close to what they are buying now. Oh, that's a, that's uh, a very interesting point, Alex. And uh, Conrad addressed this both in his article in mid-July and just recently on the weekend. But Conrad, can you hear us now? We have him on the panel, but... Uh, Conrad, can you hear us? He's not. He's still muted. People, listen very carefully. I'm, I'm just giving advice to Conrad how to dial back in. Give us a moment. 
right. So now we have a solution uh, because Conrad did actually try successfully to do the interview first from his PC. And he will now use his phone. Therefore, this was the explanation as to why the, the audio went away. So in just about a second, we will be ready and rock and rolling again. And Alex, then we'll come back to your question and uh, Daryl's just as well. Just give us a sec. In the meantime, Carmen, we can do some folk music, maybe. Well, well, unless it's uh, you know performed by somebody else, that might be a horrible experience for the listeners here. <laughs> so neither you nor I will sing. Okay, that's an agreement. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And there is a comrade again. Conrad, can you hear us now? Okay. Conrad, can you hear us? You should be seeing on the bottom left on your phone, on the app, you should be seeing the... Uh... Ah, there you go. Maybe now, here, yes. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. Here we go. <laughs> uh, the joys of... Uh, so, I missed a lot, I suppose. Give, give, me, give me a hint where we should start again. Um, why don't... Yeah, okay. Why don't we go back? Uh, when, when you walk through the various parties in Germany and how they... Because there's a couple of questions from the audience which already came up. But when you walk through the various parties, okay, for example, the Christian Democrats, the liberals who are, have a more pro-business approach and go hand in hand with the German, say, tendency to just simply export and not necessarily care about the scrutiny vis-a-vis uh, -vis the export uh, chains and the distribution chains, that the Greens have been quite adamant. The interesting thing is that there is, of course, at least by current vote and by current uh, majorities, there is still a party in government, the party led by Olaf Scholz, who has even uh, the right to guide the finance minister and give him orders if necessary. But he also hasn't really put this on any kind of um, agenda, has he? It doesn't look like um, the chancellor is um, really um, eager to sharpen his profile in this um, in this sphere, uh, he in in the in the uh, ruling coalition of liberals, greens, and social democrats, um, he is notably pro-business. That can, you can see that um, when it comes to China, when uh, the uh, the green minister of economy um, um, wanted a much 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 stricter approach to. Uh, for example, risky investments of uh, of Chinese companies in in Germany, uh, the Chancellor would always have would always pursue the path saying, "Let them invest, uh, uh, let business go its way." So, um, um, on the side of the Social Democrats, you won't find anybody who speaks up for a tougher regime. Um, you will also not find very many people who advocate um, uh, more trade with Russia, as you find, for example, with um, um, uh, some prime ministers from um, uh, lands governed by the Christian Democrats, like Michael Kretschmer in, in Saxony, who clearly... He is a special a, case, though, is he not, Conrad? Uh, yes, he's the most, he's the most uh, vocal of a whole stream of thought that says um, um, we have a 
problem with the far right in Germany, the AfD, Alternative for Deutschland, who, which is Putinist, uh, like many far right parties in, um, in, in other countries as well, like the uh, Rassemblement National in France or the, uh, the Lega in Italy. The German far right is also, is also Putinist, pro-Russia, and some in the, uh, especially in uh, um, Eastern Germany, think that they can keep the far right at bay by copying their positions. So you, you will find, in, in this case, yes, Kretschmer of Saxony, the Prime Minister of Saxony, uh, um, federal land in Eastern Germany, is special because he thinks that he can... Um, um, attract the electorate of the far right to his center right party by um, by telling them, look, I care more for the gas prices that you think are too high than for Ukraine, which is far away. Um, so um, you will find this stream of thought uh, um, more, I suppose, in. Uh, in parts of Germany in which the competition to the far right is the strongest, uh, which is uh, most in um, East German lands. So Mr. Kretschmer, to, to describe him appropriately, is a little bit in the tradition of the, um, shall we say, um, post-SED um, uh, appeasing Blockflöte, is that a fair statement? So that he's still piping the old um, um, the old tunes which the previous CDU under the guidance of the Soviets played? Because he doesn't seem to be very um, freedom-oriented. He doesn't seem to be really conservative. He just plays a populist tune. Isn't that the case more? Um I mean, Mr. Kiesewetter, for example, dreads him. Right. Yeah. So, to 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 to, to defend and to save the reputation of the Christian Democrats, we have to say there are people like uh, the member of Parliament Rudolf Kiesewetter, one of the most prominent foreign policy and security experts, who are strictly on the. Uh, on the side of Ukraine and uh, criticize this dream in the uh, this dream of thought in uh, uh, in his own party and um, um, I think this is going to be a problem for the leadership of the German center right of the Christian Democrats. They will have to deal with this conflict, which has which comes up in their in their own party. Um, the the party leader uh, Friedrich Merz. Um, has a reputation to be strongly Atlantic in his NATO-oriented, in his in his approach. He has also visited Kiev um, as a sign of solidarity. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he wants to keep the votes of East Germans, and he will have to manage this um, 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 this split that seems to show up in his own party. This this uh, setup in German politics is, is evidently based on the politicians not communica communicating clearly and not really leading, because otherwise they could make the case for freedom and the case for 
uh, Ukraine as part of an alliance of those who are free nations who subscribe to what you and I, I tend to believe in um, uh, jointly, would try to safeguard that the property rights, the freedoms of the individual, the usual things which we hold dear in our constitutions in the West, that those can only be protected by means of deterrence and defeating uh, Russia. But that doesn't seem to be the case in, in the German political sphere, but this can be discussed without um, a lot of navel-gazing ambiguity, and therefore then such things as you described in your article are the result that customs and uh, German institutions fail to have guidance also on that end. It seems to meander through the whole economy. It's not just that we hear there's some customs. We heard it just recently that there are the German security services find more and more penetration by Russian agents, but nobody's really looking for them as much as they should. We hear that uh, there's a lot of money laundering going on, and German banks uh, have not really reported much, despite the fact that there's a number of organizations who believe that there's a lot of money going through Germany, given its export base. So who should guide the German politicians? Wouldn't it be the chancellor's task? Absolutely. He's, he's, the, person, he's the person in charge, and uh, he, uh, unfortunately, he's not the, that kind of political character who leads from the front. Um, he, he, the formula he uh, uses is leadership from the middle, which means um, look to your left, look to your right, and avoid being in front. Um, avoid being in front. Take care that there's always somebody in front of you, somebody behind you, somebody to the right and to the left, and look at America. Uh, the chancellor. Um, has a reputation for taking, not for not taking any decision. With, for example, when it comes to deliveries of uh, of weapons to Ukraine, if the United States haven't taken a similar decision for themselves, um, so he he's reluctant to lead. He's uh, he is uh, following the path that Joe Biden defines. It has been like that with uh, the delivery of tanks. Germany was ready to deliver modern Leopard tanks only at the point where the United States announced that they also would deliver their Abrams. In the case of the Abrams, it was then just a symbolic number, but the German chancellor needed that to be sure that in the case that the leadership in the United States might change after the next presidential election and a, um, either Donald Trump or a person like him might become president of the USA, that uh, in, in that case, Germany doesn't stand alone. Um, that is, the, in my interpretation, um, that's the central, the, the central fear of the German leadership to put, to put themselves in front and then to stand alone in front if America, if the American voters decide to change the course of their politics in the next presidential elections. Uh, so um, um, it's not that I, that I support this point of view, but it's from the point of view of interest, it's understandable uh, that, that Germany acts as it does. I think it's at the same time a lack of leadership and a lack of of uh, 
democratic democratic solidarity with Ukraine, but from a purely let's say um, realpolitik point of view, uh, there is some some point of rationale behind the German position. I'm adding that realpolitik is that is the sort of uh, pure realpolitik is not the approach that we can choose uh, when it comes to Ukraine uh, okay. because it's also a great a grand word. It's also about values and not just about um, a sort of abstract power gamble that we are speaking of here. Thank you for saying this. And, um, this, is, this is the key aspect. Plamen, please carry on. I, I knew you would come with us. Um, no, well, um, thank you very much, Conrad. Very insightful. I just wanted to, um, to, to ask you, um, given the, the pondering and schultzing of Schultz, if you like, um, how do you think is, is this impacting the, the electorate? Do we see, do you see in Germany people supporting more the Greens? Because as you mentioned, they are one of the most sort of um, steadfast in, in this respect and uh, less prone to, to give in to a real politic um, in, this, in this respect. Or do you see not significant changes in the electoral sort of intentions? I must say, I'm, I'm, I have not followed the last opinion post in this, but um, uh, if you ask me, um, the politics of the chancellor reflects what he sees in opinion polls. Uh, he once said in another in, in another um, context, um, governments should not should avoid taking decisions that they could not defend in a popular vote. Now, a popular vote is not something, something a referendum is not something that, that the um, German constitution foresees, but this is the way um, Chancellor Scholz thinks. Uh, don't do anything that not, where you are not sure that the majority of your population stands behind you. So, again, it's not a concept of leadership, it's more a concept of fellowship uh, that he as a leader has adopted. And he reflects in his way of thinking a particular German mindset, which I would state now without actually having data. But I would think uh, one of the deepest traumas of Germany, of, of the German psyche, is uh, the defeat against Russia in World War II. There is a deep, 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 deep deeply rooted, rooted uh, fear of Russia uh, in German families, in German families who have experienced, for, for, for whom the, uh, the, 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 the war against the Soviet Union, uh, 1941 to 1945, Uh, or coming back after years of, of imprisonment in the Soviet Union, completely traumatized, uh, not knowing their wives and children anymore because they had been away for, for, for 10 years, for, uh, if you include the, the time in, in, in POW camps. So this, there is a deep, deep fear of Russia inseminated, if you ask me. I'm, just, I'm now not based on, on, on data, but just reflecting my own, my own feelings inseminated or inherent in the German mindset. Um, so that's why 
this idea, oh my Lord, this could escalate. This could draw us into a war with Russia, resonates in the German, in the German mindset. Um, and, and in the chancellor who is always trying to do what he sees in the, to be predominant in the mindset of his electorate. It's interesting. This leads me to... Uh, sorry, someone, Oh, sorry. It's I... interesting because the numbers at the moment, of course, this is just a moment in time, a snapshot, but the numbers at the moment only bear out that the Greens are still hovering in between 13 and 15 percent in the, so to say, in the average or on the average of the various election polls. Um, the uh, Liberal Democrats remain low between six and seven. And um, the Christian Democrats, depending on who you ask and who's being polled and how, uh, the deeper the poll, the more they have. This is the interesting part. So if you look at it, look recently at uh, Ipsos and uh, you look at maybe Infratest DMAP or Allensbach, you will find out that they have higher numbers because they obviously operate differently with their polls. But in pure telephone polls, they still hover around 26%. The Social Democrats are the ones who have lost the most since their election. They're anywhere between 17 and at best 19 and a half. So essentially, it's Olaf Scholz with his cautious approach, which you just lined out, uh, Conrad, who is losing the most. That, well, I would add to this analysis that um, the, um, the causes for this uh, present state of uh, uh, political power, balance of power in Germany, uh, are not the war in Ukraine, not the Russian aggression against the Ukraine. The dominant topics in the last of the last weeks and months, and the topics that have co that have caused the slump in uh, they are domestic. In, um, uh, are, it's basically the uh, the transformation of the economy and the um, the costs of uh, of um, um, greening the economy. Um, German, the the present coalition has given itself the task to green the economy. That means fuels are getting more expensive. Uh, people have to will have to exchange their heating systems in, in their houses. All this costs a lot and interferes directly in the lives of, uh, of, of families. So those are the costs, the, the causes for the present losses of, um, of Greens and Social Democrats and, and also of the Liberals, the, the, the coalition parties. Um, these these changes at the moment, in my opinion, don't re, don't re, don't reflect the German feeling about the war, about the Russian aggression in Ukraine. They're different, and I think that um, um, that party who is who has the strongest solidarity with um, Ukraine, which are the Greens, might um, get stronger in the in the course of the next couple of months because uh, some of the toughest measures in greening the economy have been taken now. And um, so the, the, the present discontent about this uh, might fade until the next general election, which is in 2025. Uh, so um, um, I, still, I still see that there is there is a chance that the fight is not lost, the fight to win majorities for the cause of Ukraine because the present slump uh, has, other, has, has other causes. 
Thank you very much. I mean, we can argue this for, for hours because I think that you're right. Um, there is a long, long lead time to the next election, unless, of course, the coalition breaks uh, over those domestic issues as soon as um, the discontent in Germany has reached uh, higher levels, given the uh, staunch regulatory and at times even rather strange, um, shall we say, strange motivation in terms of energy policy, uh, which is breaking its way. But it's a different topic. Uh, Germany is about to deindustrialize itself, given the fact that it has too high primary energy cost compared to its competitors. And that, I think, is the, the concern people have. And that's what the domestic concern is. But if, you, if we can go back briefly to the original onset, your uh, discussions with Korisk and the likes. Infineon was one case. There's many of them. There were very large cases coming out of the US, whether it is Haas or others, where a couple of French uh, equipment suppliers who had the same issue with their chips. And uh, following those trails, these distribution chains, is on the one hand seemingly difficult, but then again it's not, because you as a journalist did this and Corus can do it. So if, if you all can do this, then um, a suitably organized uh, company should be able to do so. And the size of the company, if they can export worldwide, as German companies can do, then they should be able to do their KYC, their Know Your Customer, a little bit better. And you brought the examples of the, which I think you discussed also with Americans, that not only are um, very strange patterns coming about, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, uh, Turkey, start importing certain assets, certain components in vast numbers. Evidently, everybody in the market will know what is happening. If uh, Kazakhstan starts importing white goods, meaning washing machines, dryers, and the likes, in order to then sell them onwards so the Russians can cannibalize them, everybody in Germany will know. And I'm quite sure that people uh, from Bosch and from Miele will know what's happening to their better chips, don't you think? I cannot hear you at the moment. Uh, did you Did you hear the question? Yeah, I I, I heard I heard, the, heard the question. It, not the last bit of it, but I think it is about the um, the circumvention parts. Yes. And um, indeed, mo um, almost all of the sanctioned goods that reach Russia from uh, from European Union countries go either over China or over Central Asia or over um, Georgia, Armenia. Uh, so, sorry, Georgia, um, yes, Georgia, Armenia. Um, so, uh, so we can see this this um, uh, surge in, in export of sanctions goods to these countries, Central Asia, Kazakhstan being the biggest of them, uh, Georgia, Armenia, and we can, of course, guess it, that all ends up, uh, that pro all probably ends up in Russia. So what can we do? Um, the, the last sanctions package of the European Union uh, has included a provision that says um, uh, export of certain sanctioned goods to certain countries can be prohibited. So if we see a surge in uh, in these particular chips, for example, uh, taking its way probably over 
a country um, like Kazakhstan into Russia, you could, the European Union has created a framework to decide we prohibit the export of this particular item to Kazakhstan. Um, it hasn't happened yet. So if you look at the at, into the um, uh, EU directive uh, that which contains the list of countries um, affected by such prohibition, the list is still empty. There is not a single country in, in that list. Ukraine says, uh, dear European Union, look at Kazakhstan, look at Kyrgyzstan, look at Georgia, put those goods which they bring into Russia on that list and prohibit the export of those goods into Kazakhstan, Georgia, and so on. The Ukrainians also add, they see that one of the biggest problems is China. We also found in our um, case study on Infineon that the bulk of these 160,000 chips that we found uh, of that chips of that time type which end up in Kinjar missiles, the bulk of those chips went over China. So the, the European Union has to, to think about the very difficult decision to sanction China, which is possible under uh, theoretically under present regulations. Uh, if you look at, into the uh, into the um, um, EU directive, it has the number 833 of 2014. You have the, the possibility to sanction, to, 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 um, uh, to, to prohibit the export of certain goods to China. Uh, but of course, um, this would be enlarging the battlefields. This would be, this decision would, uh, would uh, of course, uh, um, lead into consequences that nobody dares to imagine at the moment sanctioning China. And especially because Germany is so dependent currently on exports and interaction with China, given the fact that, of course. Given the fact that its domestic economy is in shambles. Um, now, of course. That brings me to the point. You just mentioned Kyrgyzstan. Just for the purpose of the audience, uh, Germany's trade with Kyrgyzstan, the exports to Kyrgyzstan, in the year prior to the full-scale invasion, 2021, were slightly above 52 million euros, slightly above. Seven times larger it became in 2022, 350 million. Now, Kyrgyzstan did not increase massively in terms of its economic capacity, but it did import 192 million of vehicles, 36 million of machinery and machine tools, boilers and the likes, and 23 million of electric, uh, electronic equipment, electric equipment, the likes, and another 9 million of um, optical, phototechnical, medical apparatus. If you take this all together, there's a lot of kit which has gone to Russia through Kyrgyzstan. Yes, uh, it's Kyrgyzstan, it's Kazakhstan, where you also see, for example, things like gunpowder being imported, I think, from France. And uh, um, at the same time, customs data see an export of gunpowder from Kazakhstan into Russia. So it's, it's uh, even that sort of goods. Um, yes, we have to understand that um, 
that Ukraine expects um, European Union to act on this. Um, um, uh, Vladislav Lasyuk, who is the, uh, the president's um, 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 envoy on, on sanctions, clearly says, do something. We have this possibility to, 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 to sanction countries. Do it if you see that they, um, um, that they violate sanctions. Uh, you can do it um, uh, in a quite well-calibrated way because you don't have to sanction all experts, exports into, into a particular country. You can do it by category. So if you, you don't have to, 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 to prohibit the export of cars and chips and washing machines, you can choose which item you take. So you can just give a warning shot if you want. Uh, you don't have to give uh, to, to, uh, to initiate a full-scale full trade conflict with such, with such countries, but you can give them a sort of what we say in Germany, a Schuss vor den Bug. Um, a shot across the bow, uh, yep. A shot across the bow, exactly. Uh, and show them this is, we are not joking. So that is what I would expect from my government. Uh, or, and it's actually not our government, it's the European Union who has to take this decision. But I would expect from my government to advocate something like that in the European Union. Yeah, and Germany does have weight and a voice there. Now, we have uh, three questions from the audience, Conrad. I hope you have the time for this. I would uh, go to of course. I would go to Daryl and then to Alex and then to Hendrik. Daryl, please. Okay, three short questions. Uh, first of all, with the uh, influence in the, in the parties, um, looking at the age of a person that would have been living at the time of the prisoners of war, uh, those people in their 80s, you know, late 70s, 80s at this point, do they still have that much influence over the younger generations um, as far as that type of policy and, and the fear of Russia? Or is that just um, Russian propaganda uh, being used to influence a younger generation. Uh, second of all, uh, the trade with uh, in Germany, uh, as far as the items that you are mentioning, um, what, what is the cost of the war on the German uh, trade? Are they, has it significantly dented uh, Germany's trade uh, to a point where it's really affecting commerce. Uh, and then the last one, the last question I have, uh, uh, these, these items that you're speaking of and the uh, trade with China, wouldn't it be more beneficial to have a short-term trade uh, issue with China with the... Uh, with the intent that the war not last as long and that things can go back to normal a lot sooner if China acts um, accordingly uh, in this respect. In other words, a short-term you know, hurt with a, long, with a longer-term uh, prospect of prosperity uh, look if, if the war ends. So um, I'm trying, I would try to give short answers to these three questions. Um, 
of course, the generation that has experienced um, uh, World War II and that has directly experienced the trauma of um, of losing the uh, the greatest war in history uh, is now fading away. But let's say the oral history in families. Uh, uh, still exists, and we can see it. We can see in many nations how oral history um, um, prevails over generations. So, of course, the the generation that is now in 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 its teenage years will not be so much affected. But uh, we have an aging society. The 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 baby boomers who are now the largest group in um, uh, the people between about sixty. Uh, who are now the largest group um, in the Germ in German society, still heard that from their parents and grandparents, and saw this particular expression in their faces when um, war against Russia was mentioned. So, of, it still exists. Uh, of course, the younger generation is less affected by that than the middle generation, which still is very strong in Germany for demographic reasons. Now. Coming to the costs of um, that the war inflicts on on Germany, as far as I can see, it is uh, less the um, the, um, the loss of exports. the the biggest The biggest um, um, burden for the for the for Germany's economy is, as in other countries, um, who export who import. Energy is the the rising costs of um, of natural gas, which leads, as the markets are connected, to rising costs of other um, sources of energy. Uh, um, some countries are less affected of, by this by this um, development, like the U.S., who produces enough energy for its own consumption, like. Norway, who rather profits from this because they're an exporter. Germany is affected by, um, by the rising costs of uh, or, uh, basically of Russian gas. And um, um, uh, this is also one of the main reasons why, why politicians get wobbly on Russia and dream of, uh, of coming back to the time, to the so-called beautiful times before the full-scale invasion, where Germany, um, where German economy lived of cheap Russian energy, so that is the main, the main um, burden that German economy takes from this from this war. Now, thinking of uh, coming to your question number three, um, China, um, of course, of course. Um, I, I would advocate any measure that could bring China to uh, uh, to control its export of sanctions goods into into Russia in a stronger way. Um, if that should ever be thought about, it cannot be done otherwise than with than in the union between Euro European Union and United States. Um, and other countries like Japan, uh, every 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 single actor would be too weak for something like that. And uh, then all this has to be calibrated 
because we need cooperation with China in other spheres. We need cooperation in, uh, um, 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 for example, in um, the defense against climate change. Um, China uses this tool, the uh, requirement of cooperation in climate policy to, to actually to put pressure on other countries, maybe to blackmail other countries. Um, so uh, I, I must confess this question goes a little bit beyond my, beyond my sphere of expertise. Uh, I see, I'm, I'm not a China expert. Uh, I see that, of course, something has to be done. And what I would say, this item, export of sanctions go to Russia, has to be part has to be a decisive part in a package of issues that we have with China. We have a lot of issues with China. We have um, the issue of Taiwan. We have um, shared trade interests. We have a shared interest in, um, in, um, in climate policy. And we have conflicts. And I think that this issue of sanctions against Russia needs to, be, to have a stronger weight in the package of issues that we have to solve. Thank you very much. All righty. Conrad, um, we have a question from Alex and Hendrik and then Plamen, and uh, then we will wrap it up. Alex. Thank you. Uh, my question would be this. Uh, when we say China, it's probably not China per se. It's company was in China. And the companies that either didn't exist last year or did not buy that much like last year. So can, can it be considered that uh, there are some quotas introduced uh, and basically controlled that, you know, um, no company can buy more than, say, 100%? Like, you know, introduce quotas to uh, put stricter control, not for China per se, but the company that increased that... Um, that export. That's one thing. And the other one, and no, that's probably dreaming. But uh, what about, you know, sending faulty batch, uh, if there is any faulty batch can be produced, you know, because uh, China won't, the product won't even be consumed in China, which means uh, your customer in China will never find out. Uh, it, it has to be coming from Russia that the product was faulty and it's kind of but again, that's um, probably technologically more difficult. But again, uh, quotas for companies. Thank you. Um, the problem with this is that we don't oversee the trade chains. Chains. What we can see in in the data, in um, publicly available data um, of Russian imports, is o always just the end. Um, uh, the the, the actual company from which a Russian customer buys, for example, a, a chip. But we don't know from the, the trade, the, the chain of sometimes very many intermediaries. Um, and uh, the Ukrainians tell us that uh, these structures are in a constant state of fluid change. Uh, companies are being created sometimes just for a day, as shell companies for just a particular delivery, then they disappear again. <laughs> and um, um, uh, ownership is completely 
it's very, very difficult to, uh, to determine because they are then registered in uh, legislations where ownership is difficult to find out. So these are huge problems. And I think the idea of sending 40 manipulated chips, that I would say, hooray, let's do it. But actually, we don't know, we have not found out which of the chips that a American or Germany, German company sells into China actually ends up in Russia. Because after its delivery to a customer in China, that customer in China sells it again and again and again. And then at the seventh point, it reaches Russia. So um, here's, here's a problem that um, uh, I, with my means as a journalist, I could not look into these chains. They, they, were, they, were, they, were not, they were not transparent from public, publicly accessible data. And I wonder whether it would make sense actually to identify such change because once you have identified it, it disappears and another chain is being created. So um, the European Union has probably for this reason not even created the instrument of sanctioning single companies in third countries like China or Kazakhstan. It has created just the instrument of sanctioning a whole country for a specific category of goods. Um, the instrument for sanctioning single companies has not been created and um, um, uh, I think it would be very difficult as these companies always change to, to, to apply such a list of sanctioned companies in third countries in any meaningful way. Uh, Conrad, I would ask a question. Uh, sorry, Alex, if you don't mind. A uh, friend of the space and a friend of ours, a beef eater who can't, I mean, he's in the audience, but he's currently traveling, so he couldn't ask the question. He had, uh, by means of checking with his sources, identified or found that a group identified an entity in Baden-Württemberg, of course, yet again founded by, uh, uh, say, a Russian couple, Vadim and Elena Chernet. The entity is, of course, called edX-ST, and seemingly they also own a company which they established after the invasion in Kazakhstan called Dago. Actually, I lost you now. Do you hear me? After you mentioned Vadim and Elena Chernet. Okay. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me again? I cannot hear you at the moment. That's interesting. Uh, Plaman, can you say a word and ask him whether he can hear you? Conrad, can you hear? I Axel? cannot hear you. Can you hear me? Um, Axel, apparently he, he can't hear anyone of us. Uh, I don't think. Okay. Uh, he might have lost. That's interesting. Um, wait a sec. I'll, I'll send him a message. Can you hear me now? Well, I, I can hear you, but you can't. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you can. So, so, okay. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I fine. can. I can. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> we have this a couple of times. So I mentioned Vadim and Elena Chernet. So it's public information. We can talk about it. It's not a problem. Um, they founded an entity in Germany in uh, 2005 called Edex ST. This entity right. founded, uh, say, or they also founded a separate entity, not a daughter company, but found a, a separate entity in Kazakhstan, right after the invasion. Uh, they are evidently of Russian descent, um, seemingly um, have had long, say, affiliations with Kazakhstan. We do not know much about the rest of the shareholder base, whether there's any other people in it. Nevertheless, we could find this out. This is easy stuff. However, this entity is linked through Kazakhstan to off-takers in Russia, who all are part and parcel 
seemingly, according to independent investigations, and they're published on the internet. Uh, it's not slander. No, on the contrary, it's actually what has happened to a group da, called DA Group 22, which then um, exports to Steck um, and the Russian military and the space and defense manufacturers in Russia, and in quite a sizable amount. And they take, of course, delivery from, now it comes, Texas Instruments, analog devices, SD microelectronics, and Infineon. If we and other journalists and other investigators can find this out publicly, why on earth, why on earth would Infineon not do it? Um, the answer is, um, is quite simple. They don't do it because they are not required to do it. Um, I talked to the to um, to to people who um, know about the dealings of the German customs. But German customs don't require companies to include this sort of analysis in their um, um, in their due diligence. Um, uh, so. Infineon can do that sort of investigation that uh, we did together with Chorus, that other journalist colleagues, I think uh, in that case that you mentioned was uncovered by Der Spiegel. Uh, bigger companies or companies in Germany are not required to do this sort of investigations. Um, the, the, the German customs will not regard it as a failure in compliance and due diligence if they don't do that sort of analysis that journalists can more or less easily do if they know how to do it. Um, so uh, the CEO of Infineon, to whom I talked, um, um, after we confronted him with this um, stream, with this huge stream of chips, of Infineon chips uh, pouring into Russia, uh, said, I'm deeply, deeply sorry that this happened, but I could not say what we could have done more to prevent this. I would say, uh, you could ju just have asked me, I could have told you <laughs> what to do more, although I'm not a, a, a specialist in due diligence and in compliance. You did not do it because you didn't have to, because German authorities don't require you to do so, because um, the Zollkriminalamt, um, um, so the investigative unit of the company, of, of the customs, will not regard this as a violation of compliance uh, if you don't do these quite simple checks which, which journalists or chorus do. The, um, this lack of, of uh, compliance culture is a, basically is a a common phenomenon of German authorities and German companies who um, um, uh, are in a sort of silent agreement to let these things go on as they go. Yep, very good point. All righty, we have one more hand up. Hendrik. Yes, uh, I want to remind everyone of uh, John Deere. All the tractors that were stolen in uh, Ukraine were shipped to Russia and the second they got to Russia 
uh, John Deere literally locked them up to be useless. So my suggestion would be if uh, to find the right chip manufacturers and to pull chip uh, killer uh, software in there and that the United States or the manufacturer at its point of origin can literally make the chip unusable and to the point where they can install the chip on the missile and when it goes to get fired, it does not act and do that on a serial basis to keep track of. But there should be some way to put a poison pill into these chips uh, when they're used for war. Well, that's on how it works, Hendrik, I can tell you. That's the biggest problem with that. Now, why would that, that not be able to I be can done? tell you, um, because the chip as it is construed and constructed is only a small component of a larger targeting system. The chip in itself is a dead piece of kit. It is nothing else than a processor. It's nothing else than a conductor. And uh, you still have to provide the software. When you talk about John Deere, that's a different thing. If you have a, a say, complete navigation system in John Deere, which you can block by means of, a, by means of software, uh, and you can even hard lock it if it's you know, um, EEPROM'd in, that's definitely doable. But that is taking a full-blown product, a tractor, and shutting it down, or a combined harvester and shutting it down. But a simple chip, that's not that easy. Well, there, I mean, there are certain chips like IMUs. True. And or yes. uh, but it's, the it's, other chips, but that's not the what other we're chips about. for example. I, I agree with you, Henry. GPS. Yeah, I understand, but these are different chips. That's the problem with these Iskander and the Kinjar uh, missile, uh, uh, say, navigation systems, which Conrad specifically highlighted in and um, which the investigation together with Corus actually derived. These are relatively, they're, they're high grade and they're important, but they're still relatively cheap and simple chips. Yeah, it's actually an SRAM, um, which is a sort of 100,000 pieces per day product. Um, Russia needs them desperately, but not because, not because they are so highly sophisticated, but because Russia doesn't have the, the capacity to produce them at the moment. So, um, uh, yes, I doubt whether one of these chips that we, tracked, that we tried to, to, to track down would could be uh, uh, could be um, uh, manipulated or um, uh, remote controlled in the way that uh, that you that you proposed. Fair enough. Being quite a simple, being quite a, a simple uh, um, element and not a complex system. And, and that is where the real uh, real issue lies, that uh, there's a, um, these are small components which all together, if assembled, which the Russians themselves can neither produce nor can they easily procure them. For us, it's relatively easy to sell them. They are used ubiquitously, and therefore um, it, is own, it is so difficult for us to essentially uh, protect the sand on the beach. That is the real issue. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Because because if you see that single category of chips that we tracked down in the course of, um, I think, nine months from October 22 to, to June 23, uh, Russia imported 160,000 of those 
chips, um, as we could see on. Um, so it's 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 actually yes, as you said, a stream of sand uh, 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 pouring through 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 a sieve um, um, that is very very difficult to control. Also, exactly because this is a mass product, uh, we could see that some of the traders um, uh, in countries like China uh, were just something as simple as um, supermarket change, chains, um, um, something like in Germany, Mediamarkt or Saturn, uh, which is a supermarket chain where everybody can go and buy an electronic product without... Uh, stating his name. So in that case, it is very, very difficult to track down single deliveries um, and to, to make somebody responsible for such a single delivery. If we can see that the, that the, uh, the, the, last, the, the last hand through which that chip has gone is just a supermarket in China, a supermarket chain in, uh, in, in China. Um, so yes, we, we probably won't we won't um, be able to tackle this problem if we don't think about applying the possibility uh, of activating the sanctions list for third countries and introduce this topic in our negotiations in the package of topics that we have to negotiate with China. Uh, I know it's very complicated. I know that there are immense um, uh, interests of, in, on both sides who sometimes are vital interests to the, uh, to the German economy but also to the China, Chinese economy. We have leverage. We also have leverage because the Chinese are dependent on us as much as we are on, on them. So this should become part of the package. Uh, not so much the single companies. I don't see very much hope in that. Conrad, thank you for highlighting this. You just made my day because you repeated one statement which we often like to highlight here. We have leverage because we are the West. Germany has leverage. It is economically strong, but it requires more than the leadership from the middle, as you described it earlier in regard to Mr. Scholz and the likes. Um, thank you very much for taking the time uh, this evening. It's absolutely special. I would hope that as you continue writing about both Ukraine and specifically this economic issue, which is vital, that we shall be able to welcome you back soon because uh, our audience is extremely happy to hear from you and is even more interested in hearing more granular detail as to what happens in Germany and how this actually impacts Ukraine. So I thank you very much and I thank you all of, all of you who are in this space now also for your bravery to endure all these interruptions that we had, <laughs> which are partly due to my Wi-Fi here, um, partly due to my uh, digital incompetence. So thanks for uh, being, for enduring this and uh, and staying and staying. Connected. Of course, thank you, Conrad. M very much appreciated. And uh, best regards to the colleagues you work with on this matter. Uh, we shall be uh, looking forward to having you back again. All the best. Thank you.